Our sermon text this morning is Mark 5, 21 to 42. Um, Pastor Chris is out of town this week, and so we're not in the Psalms, but uh, if you were here for his sermon last week on uh, the mercy of God, I do hope that this, this story uh, about Jesus, I hope you see the connection between those two. Um, let's, let's read God's word. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, and told the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this story is, is an incredible story of healing and power. Um, but also of mercy and love. Uh, We pray that this morning uh, your word will sink into us um, and we will hear uh, the message that you have for us through your spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. If you could forget the ending to a book or a movie, which one would you pick? Would you like to watch Titanic again, wondering how Jack and Rose will live happily ever after? 
you want another chance to figure out an Agatha Christie mystery before the big reveal. It's a wonderful journey to read a good book, but once we know how it ends, some of the tension fades. It's hard to muster up the same level of excitement when we know how it'll turn out. I can't wait to read The Lord of the Rings to my son because he'll be able to experience it for the first time without knowing what happens to Frodo and Sam. When I read our text this morning, I wish I could forget the ending. We've read the Gospels enough times that we know how it's going to end as soon as the story starts. There's no tension. There's no real conflict. I know that Jesus is going to heal the woman and Jairus' daughter. So it's hard to feel what the characters are going through. The problem is there are only two parts to this story, the crisis for the characters and the salvation Jesus brings. If we can't understand the crisis, we won't be able to understand the salvation. If we can't feel the crisis, we won't be able to feel the salvation. So this morning, let's take a few minutes to dig into what these characters are experiencing. To start, let's look at the woman. Mark tells us that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Israel was a society governed by a set of purity laws. A person could only go to worship if they were ritually clean. Not only was this woman ritually unclean, so was anyone who touched her. It puts a big damper on your social life when anyone who spends much time with you needs to quarantine. She was separated from the community and from God, which may be why Mark doesn't use her name. He wants us to understand that she is not part of this community. She is not a known person. After one year of moderate quarantine, most of us were going bonkers. So it's not hard to see why she did everything in her power to fix this situation. She's cut off from friends, family, and community. Mark tells us that she had spent all her money on doctors. We don't know what treatments they tried, but we do know that they caused her great suffering and they didn't even fix the underlying issue. Instead, her health was going downhill. This woman had absolutely nothing no social connections, no money, no options. She came to Jesus in complete and utter desperation. Now let's look at Jairus. He's the opposite. He isn't an outcast. In fact, he's the ruler of the synagogue. We might think of him as an elder of the church, but in a society where communal life revolves around the church. It's something that would look really good on a job application. Jairus was probably pretty well off financially. He's married with a child, and he's respected. People know the name of Jairus. But despite all that, Jairus falls at Jesus' feet in the same way as the woman, because his daughter is dying. The Gospel writer Luke tells us that this girl was Jairus' only daughter, and she was dying at the age of 12. I can't imagine the incredible pain of losing a child, and I don't know how to make an appropriate analogy, but I'm sure Jairus was as desperate as he'd ever been. And as Jairus waits for Jesus, his last hope is extinguished. Someone arrives from his house bringing the news that the holy man is no longer needed. It's too late. His daughter is dead, and all that's left to do is mourn. 
can be hard for us to relate to these stories. In our world, 2,000 years later, medical science is, a quite, is quite a bit more advanced. We don't, offer, we don't often encounter something our doctors can't figure out. And when they tell us that it's a chronic or a terminal illness, we come to terms with that. But I think these themes may be more universal than we give them credit for. Even before the pandemic forced us to cut down on socializing, our society was grappling with the problem of loneliness. 25% of Americans live alone, and 20% report experiencing loneliness. And this isn't just a sad feeling, this is a lack of connection that is leading to measurable health impacts. Roughly a 30% rise in incidence of heart disease and strokes among people with poor social connections. We're spending billions of dollars each year to deal with the symptoms of loneliness, but we're not sure how to prevent it. And the problem is that the causes are everywhere. Some people struggle to connect because of physical health issues that keep them isolated. More people struggle with mental health issues that make it difficult, even a Herculean effort, just to see others, much less engage in relationship-building activities. They face challenges that are invisible to the rest of us, but isolate them in very real ways. Even more common than either physical or mental health issues are sin issues. How many of us are willing to open our lives completely to each other, including the sin that is present? How many of us want to be more fully known if that knowing means that our sins are laid out for all to see? This is the problem that Dietrich Bonhoeffer lays out in his book, Life Together. Quote, It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur, because although they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. End quote. So instead of being part of true community, we hide our sin and we hide ourselves. Just like the woman in Mark's gospel, we are unclean, and we try everything to be made well. There are a lot of ways that we can be socially acceptable, have the right kind of job, have the right leisure activities, have the right bank account balance. Church even adds an extra one, be very righteous. And we try them all. Like the, human, or like the woman spent all her money on doctors, we spend our lives trying to reach a point where we can finally throw open the doors and let everyone into our house because finally we will have nothing to hide. We'll have nothing to be ashamed of. We'll have finally become successful enough, become righteous enough, become cool enough. Brothers and sisters, it won't happen. You will never be able to walk back into the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. You will never get rid you will never rid yourself of the stain of sin, and nothing in this world can heal you of that. All right, 
So maybe the story of the woman is starting to resonate a little bit, but how do we relate to Jairus? This one is really hard in our culture, and I think there's two reasons for that. The first is that we don't think we're going to die. Tim Keller has been battling pancreatic cancer for the last year. His terminal diagnosis uh, has caused him to really wrestle with this question. In April, he wrote an essay in The Atlantic where he said this, quote, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker argued that the denial of death dominates our culture. But even if he was right that modern life has heightened this denial, it has always been with us. As the 16th century Protestant theologian John Calvin wrote, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. Keller says, death is an abstraction to us, something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. I think Keller, Becker, and Calvin are right about that. For the majority of us, death is just not something we plan for. If you want to see this in action, ask someone how many years they have left before they die. I promise it'll get real uncomfortable for both of you. Why is that? We're all dying. Some of us have terminal illnesses and know that day is soon approaching, but none of us would actually claim that we're going to live forever. It's just an unspoken belief. The second reason this is hard to talk about is because we don't want to sound crazy. Some Christians talk about salvation as fire insurance. Have you heard that term? You put your faith in Jesus so you don't burn when you die. It's not a great way to talk about salvation for a number of reasons, so we try to avoid things that sound like that. But one thing it nails is just how urgent our problem is. We're going to die, and we desperately need something to save us from that fate. There's a group of people called transhumanists who believe that technology will be able to move us ahead beyond the limitations of being human. One of these transhumanists is a man named Eliezer Yudkowsky. He's a brilliant scientist working on artificial intelligence because he believes that we can reach a technological singularity and preserve consciousness in technology. He is literally trying to defeat death. In 2004, his brother Yehuda died, and he wrote an essay responding to that event. I've come back to it over and over because of his honest assessment of the human condition. Let me read some parts of it. He writes, maybe it helps to believe in an immortal soul. I know that I would feel a lot better if Yehuda had gone away on a trip somewhere, even if he was never coming back. But Yehuda did not pass on. Yehuda is not resting in peace. Yehuda is not coming back. Yehuda doesn't exist anymore. Yehuda was absolutely annihilated at the age of 19. He writes, I wonder at the strength of non-transhumanist atheists to accept so terrible a darkness without any hope of changing it. But then most atheists also succumb to comforting lies and make excuses for death even less defensible than the outright lies of religion. They flinch away, 
refused to confront the horror of 150,000 sentient beings annihilated every day. And this is his call to action. One day you'll get a phone call, like I got a phone call, and the possibility that seemed distant will become reality. You will mourn and finish mourning and go on with your life, and then one day you'll get another phone call. That is the fate this world has in store for you unless you make an effort to change it. Brothers and sisters, that is a man who is desperate in the face of death. That is a man who realizes the horror of death and understands that we need to be rescued from it. That is a man who is searching for some sort of hope. And we need to understand that desperation. We need to stop pretending that humans don't need to fear death, that everything will work out in the end. We need to recognize that we are completely powerless in the face of death. If no one saves us, we will go down to the grave and be ripped away from everyone that we love. But brothers and sisters, that is not the last word. You do not need to cryogenically freeze your body in the desperate hope that someday someone will be able to put your consciousness in a computer. Mark does not leave us in our desperation. Mark gives us a better answer. Come to Jesus. Two people came to Jesus in this story, the poor outcast woman and the synagogue ruler. Completely different social positions and problems, but both absolutely desperate. They have no hope but Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He saves them. The woman touches Jesus' garment and her bleeding stops. But Jesus is not content with that. Jesus calls her out. She's been physically restored, but Jesus puts the spotlight on her. She falls down at her feet and tells her story, and Jesus restores her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She is not just restored to physical health. She is welcomed as a beloved child. She is seen, she is known, she is loved. It's worth spending a little bit of time on this because there's a lot to unpack. Jesus is on his way to perform an important healing for a high-status official. While he's going, a poor, unclean woman touches him, making him unclean as well. And her faith? Well, what would you say to someone who is buying ancient relics because they think that they can be healed if they touch something Jesus touched? Her faith has a lot more superstition in it than good doctrine. But Jesus stops his important business for her. He commends her faith, and he makes her clean. He welcomes her. And he does the same thing with Jairus. When Jairus' last hope is extinguished, when he learns that his daughter is dead, Jesus encourages him, do not fear, only believe. He goes to Jairus' house, even though the mourners laugh at him, and he touches the dead girl, again entering into her uncleanness, and makes her alive. This is the good news. Come to Jesus. There is nothing you need to bring. In fact, there is nothing you can bring that will make him love you more. He is ready to welcome you if you are poor or if you are rich, if you fit in or if you don't.
if everyone knows your name or if no one does. If you are desperate, if you need him, come to him. If your mental health is crushing you, if your sin is holding you back from real community, or if you have realized that you need to be saved from death, come to Jesus. What kind of response can we expect from Jesus? The same response that the woman and Jairus received. Jesus will enter into your uncleanness, and he will make you clean. He will not ask whether you are good enough, or test your doctrine before he embraces you. John Calvin puts it this way, God deals kindly and gently with his people, accepts their faith, though imperfect and weak, and does not lay to their charge the faults and imperfections with which it is connected. What does this look like in practice? How do we go to Jesus? The first step is acknowledging our need, acknowledging that we need Jesus to heal us, to cleanse us, and to save us. If you're familiar with Bonhoeffer, you know that I didn't read the whole text of what he wrote. After he talks about how pretending to be perfect impedes community, he goes on, quote, but the grace of the gospel confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice or a work. He wants you alone. My son, give me your heart. God has come to you to save the sinner. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go lying to you do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. End quote. Brothers and sisters, if you need Jesus, you can say that. This is your safe space. Why? Look around you. The people that are here, we need Jesus too. We're also struggling with sin. We're also broken. But Jesus invites us anyway. We don't deserve it, but he is full of love and mercy. After acknowledging our sin, what's next? We need to let go of the things that we've been holding on to. We need to give up on the idea that we're going to save ourselves. We're not going to find the right doctor, the right exercise schedule, or the right job title to get rid of our shame and save us from death. The word repentance literally means turning around and going another way. For the woman in our text, she had to stop trusting her bungling doctors and seek out Jesus. For Jairus, it meant turning away from the despair and believing that Jesus could restore his daughter to life. What do you need to turn away from? Is it hope that your political party will usher in God's kingdom? Is it hope that buying the right house will solve the challenges of life? Are you thinking that your real problem is your sinful spouse and the solution is to walk out and find a better one? Or maybe your plan really is to preserve consciousness in computers to avoid losing loved ones. When you give up on those, come to Jesus. 
your politicians don't love you, your spouse is not the root of your problems, and there's only one person who has defeated death. My favorite hymn is one we sing here, Come Ye Sinners. Here's the first verse. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. But my favorite verse is one that isn't in the arrangement we sing. Here are the words. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. If you need Jesus, he is here for you. All right, we're almost done, but there's one last thing we need to touch on, and that's the hardest verse in this text, verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? I wish I could give you a systematic account of how divine knowledge works in the incarnate Son. I'm not that smart. You'll have to wait until Pastor Chris gets back. I can't make this verse easy to understand. But what we need to see is that Jesus is not some sort of genie where we ask and he simply makes it come true. No, there is an exchange. Paul calls this the mystery of God, his plan for Jesus to take on our humanity and our sin and for us to become sons of God through him. When we come to Jesus, he saves us not simply through his power, but also through his wounds. He welcomes us because he was forsaken. He calls you a child only because he left his father to find you and bring you home. The salvation he offers is free to you, but it was costly to him. So don't hesitate. Don't look at yourself and wonder if you meet the requirements. Don't spend more time trying to fix yourself, trying to hide your own shame. Just come to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you sent Jesus to welcome us into your family. You have called us to be yours, and all we need to do is answer that call. Help us to see your call, to see your mercy, and to respond accordingly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.